one of those words we throw around a lot in church, so it's sometimes hard to get a bead and think clearly about it. So here's your first task. What is worship? Look for pictures and images and thoughts and the way the author paints for us what worship is. And the second question, and really I think the more important one, answer this question. Why is worship? How is it that everyone in every place around the world, across all of time, has the shared desire to stand in front of something or some place or someone? How is it that we love to stand back, mouths agape, and say, wow? Why is that in us? And with that church, I would like to read for you the gospel of Jesus Christ from Second Chronicles 30. Verses 13 through 27. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. A very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem. And all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed, so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. And they took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. And the priests threw the blood that they received from the hands of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. And therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord for majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, and yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone, everyone who has set his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah, and he healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord, but day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offering and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And some of the assembly agreed together to keep the feast another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep for offering. And the princes gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. And so there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, the king.
king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and these are your people. By our own doing, we are broken and scattered. We are a mess. And so by your grace this morning, restore us. Your world, this place, delights in wreckage and ruin. And so in kindness, Jesus, would you come and show us how to worship. Show us this morning the work that you won't cease to perform for your church. And let us rejoice. Let us remember again and rejoice from hearts overflowing in the grace that you've given and never cease to give. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Yes. Is that better? So Second Chronicles, I figure we've been in the Gospel of John for... A long time, I don't know how long, but it was a long time, and Jesus was good for us there, but it's good to get a break and to think in the Old Testament and to hear the gospel there sometimes. And Second Chronicles, I figured, is one of those that you probably are unfamiliar with, and so if it's not good, it might at least be interesting. Second Chronicles is the portion of Jewish history where the cycle of bad king, worse king, amazing king, happens and it, it goes over and over and over again. And it's hard to keep all these kings straight because their names are weird and their names rhyme and sometimes different kings have the same name from a different place at a different time. So if you read this and you prefer Tolkien, that may be expected. But there are at least four names of kings that the chronicler would have us remember. David, is in here, Solomon, Hezekiah, and then Josiah. If you've been in a Baptist church at all at any point in your life, I know you've heard a sermon on Josiah. These four kings understood God and understood his worship through the, through the lens of three things. Through the lens of the temple, through the lens of the people gathered, and through the lens of the land is how they understood Worship, those three things are the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and beyond into Moses through the Exodus, all the talk about, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make of you a great nation. I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. All those great promises are solidified in temple in people, and in land. But when the original listeners of this passage heard it or read it, they were ruined. And so here is a geography and history lesson for you. I know how you like that. I am busy with atlases for hours. That may be my own sickness or oddity, but I can stare at maps for ages. So here's a map for you. Um, David, when King David was present, there was one united kingdom. 
And Solomon had it united. But when Solomon's son took the throne, the kingdoms divided. And there were 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom of Israel. And there were two tribes that stayed in the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom with the 10 tribes was far larger mass, land mass. Um, and it fell in 722 BC. The Assyrians took Israel. Does that make sense? Have you heard this story before? Okay. 722 BC. And in 2 Chronicles, the last chapter, chapter 36, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but if you turn there or look later, verses 17 through 21 relay the account of Judah falling to the Chaldeans. And that happened 150 so years later in 586 BC. And this was written while they were in exile. This is the best memory of a people in slavery, in captivity. They're reading their national history and they're trying to fight to understand why they're in a foreign land, why they lost family, why they lost their land. Why their temple was destroyed. They're fighting to get a grasp on sin and salvation. They're fighting to understand God and his worship, temple, people, and land. That's what God's people always forsake and lose. And it's what God in the flesh, Jesus Christ incarnate, fights to restore to us. A temple, a people, and a land. So we can only understand Hezekiah in that history, in that context, and specifically through the wreckage of Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz. He was a naughty king. So when Hezekiah ascends the throne, he's got the fallout of dear old dad, King Ahaz, who was a terrible king. And after he um, was defeated in battle, he went into the temple where a king doesn't belong... And he took the gold and the silver and the bronze utensils back to the smelters. And they melted down the utensils for worship from the temple. And he turned them into coins. And he paid off the other surrounding nations and armies and said, Your gods are clearly better than our God. Take this as a bribe and leave us alone. And so he instituted false worship from foreign gods in his land, assuming they were better. And that's what Hezekiah steps into, is a boarded-up temple surrounded by the gods of Syria. So Hezekiah is a good king, though. He does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And we have three chapters of Hezekiah restoring. Chapter 29, he restores the temple. Chapter 30, he restores worship and Passover Chapter 31, the people go out from this worship and they restore the land. They continue to scour out and get rid of idols. Temple, people, land. Everything that was sullied and ruined by evil Ahaz is undone and it's redeemed in the worship of the king by his people. And so in chapter 30, we see that the people hadn't celebrated Passover in about 16 years. And Passover is their history. It is their story. It's the sacramental meal that reminds them who they were, 
slaves in a foreign land. It reminds them whose they are. They belong to a God who bought them out of slavery and brought them into everything they didn't deserve. This is their story. This is what they tell year after year in joy to be remembered, and they haven't done it. They had no strength or beauty or place to run to, so the Lord acted and destroyed their enemy, and he gave them his gracious law to reflect his beauty in his land. And he purchased them this home to settle in. And the Passover they've forgotten is the defining characteristic of the whole nation. And just like them, when we forget to retell our own stories, we lose our identity. And so Ahaz raised his son to shun the covenant and to scorn the faithful. Hezekiah was catechized to run away from Israel's God, to run away from the promise of Passover. But this king would not do it. He would not let his people dwindle into spiritual amnesia. And so when Hezekiah takes the throne, he wants to reestablish the temple, the people, and the land for Yahweh. He wants to worship. And so chapter 29 again retells the story of the restoration of the temple. And in 30, we have the restoration of the meal. But you can't just throw a Passover like a Labor Day barbecue. The house wasn't just dirty. The whole nation was unclean and defiled. And there had to be a time of preparation and purification for the people to worship properly. So they moved the whole thing back a month. Passover happens the first day of the first month. And our text says they celebrate it the first day of the second month. And that comes from God's command to Moses in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 9, the Lord tells Moses, Passover, this is so important, Moses, that you guys remember this to each other. And so when do you come to celebrate it? If someone is accidentally unclean, um, if a lady accidentally has uh, an issue, a regular issue that in the law would make her unclean, you can post-date Passover and she can celebrate it later. If someone has a death in the family and they have to remove that body, they become ritualistically, ceremonially unclean, but they need to celebrate Passover so you can delay it a month. If there's a sojourner coming into the lander who's been away on business and they miss it due to extenuating circumstances, you can back it up for them up to a month. For the person, Hezekiah says, there's no single one of us who's ritualistically, ceremonially, morally clean. We, we all need an extra month to purify ourselves. And so in a shocking moment, of honest assessment. The king applies this principle to everyone in the nation. God's covenant people would be set aside. They would be made pure for worship. No one could be ready at the set time, so he sends the invitations out and begs, begs his brothers and sisters to begin repenting for worship. 
And you can notice if you read the first part of the chapter, this little detail about the addressees of the invitation. Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, and Asher are singled out among the tribes of the north. Go to these people. Go even to the people who turned their back on us. Go to our brothers who joined with our enemies and invite them too. They've taken their stand with those who were against God and His covenant just like us. And as we need to be redeemed, so do our brothers who are scattered. Come repent and worship with us. It's not too late. Come confessing and be forgiven. That's Hezekiah's invitation to family and to friends and to strangers and even to enemies. And the wording of the invitation we didn't read, but it's in verses 6 through 9. So couriers went through all Israel and Judah. It says Dan to Beersheba earlier on. That's like saying from Beaumont to El Paso or from Orange to El Paso or from Brownsville to Pampa, Dan to Beersheba, everywhere is covered. And here's what they're told. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and what's normally next? Jacob, Presbycostal out there, thank you. Abraham, Isaac, but that's not what the text says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Israel. You are Israel is what he's saying. Israel was Jacob's redeemed name after he fought with the angel of the Lord. But that's not how he gets referred to, but here it does. So in the invitation, Hezekiah is calling the enemies back to their identity, back to their redeemed name. The God of the famous and mighty, the God of the godly Abraham and Isaac, and the God of the doubting and the duplicitous and the cheating and the enemy, and the one who would even fight with the angel of the Lord, the God of Israel, beckons you to come and worship. You're His. He chose you. You are His, and He keeps you. You're His, and He fights for you to love Him. And even though you hate Him, He beckons, and He holds out grace and mercy. And in the invitation of the king, we hear a gentle whisper, Come. Would you come? And multitudes do. Thousands upon thousands of sons and daughters and black sheep and hate-filled ones and oppressed ones and broken ones and filthy ones. And they return with all of that baggage and all of that garbage. They come back to the city with the temple for the people, for the land. And the text records for us again that even an extra month is not enough. And so everyone is pulling double duty, says verse 17. So if this was the restaurant world, uh, front of house, that's Levites. They're the people who walk around to the table singing happy birthday. They're the ones who run the food from the people who brought a lamb to sacrifice. And they, they will take it to the priests. But the priests are the chefs. They're the... They're the dicers and the slicers. They're the butchers and the sauteers. And then they send it back to the Levites who run it back to the people to share and partake. There's two different groups of worship leaders. But the scene painted for us is such beautiful pandemonium that the lines get tossed aside. 
the rules get thrown out. And people are doing things in unprescribed ways. Things that would get you stoned or struck down in years past. And they're doing them from a pure heart, desperately thirsty for worship. Many of these gathered are still coated in their sin. They haven't purified themselves for this holy meal. But the good king can't bear it himself to send them away. After 16 years not hearing again the promise of Passover, he can't swallow hard enough to send them away. And so he sees their repentance. He sees their broken hearts. He sees their joyful willingness. And he can't keep them from the Lord's table despite the law and despite its provision. The people are not sanctified, but their God they desire to worship is sanctified. He is holy in their unholiness. And His holiness spills out from the throne of heaven and washes over them in their uncleanness. The king is begging for God's holiness to abound even in their sin. He pleads with the Lord for more mercy and even greater grace. And his prayer would sound something like this. God, let your grace fall on all of us, all these inadequate, all these ill-prepared, on all these filthy ones. Make us clean even though we don't deserve it. That's the most beautiful prayer I know to help you learn to pray. Make us clean even though we don't deserve it. Make them clean. Because in Christ, we do deserve it. And so we can hear the echoes of the voice of our Savior in this prayer of this King. We can hear Christ's intercession for us, His constant prayer for His covenant family. This is the prayer the Lord has not ceased to offer on your behalf. Let grace fall on the inadequate. This is the continuing labor of our Lord for us. And so in all that we don't deserve of God's grace, we have Christ standing, Christ the King, Christ the Priest, Christ the Prophet interceding for us in absolute delight. He doesn't do it grudgingly. He does it with the biggest smile that you can imagine on His face hearing our pleas for pardon and passing them to his good father. So God hears Hezekiah's prayer for forgiveness and he grants healing for the people. That's an interesting word the text chooses. He doesn't grant it and receive their worship. He hears their prayer and he heals them. Worship is healing. He grants healing to the people and the effect of that healing leads to a party the likes of which would make any frat house at SMU blush. Seven days of nonstop gourmet food, the choicest that the storehouses could afford, nonstop drink, the finest wines, the best home brew from Jerusalem, that the artisans could craft. They're called Hebrews for a reason. That's not in my notes. 
And they were singing at the top of their lungs until their voices were harsh and raspy and dancing until their legs were wobbly and couldn't stand. What we call a vacation, they call worship. A week of family and food and fellowship and feasting and song and dance. And the king himself, all the dignitaries, milling about and encouraging the people and prayers, the prayers of broken people, passionate for grace, addictive worship, fervent worship. And then they take a vote after a week in a theocracy, in a monarchy and a theocracy, the people get together and vote. Hezekiah stumbles up to the microphone and grabs it clumsily off the stand and says, Who wants to go home? No, 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 no. Who wants to go another week? Yeah! That's what I thought. Let's do it again. And here's some livestock. Let's have some barbecue. And all the princes say, Have some of mine. Let's do this whole thing again. Another round. And for two solid weeks, they partied like it was 1999. And the joy was palpable. It soaked the temple. It permeated the people. It resonated out into the land. And the author won't let us get away from an offensive amount of joy. Sheer happiness and never-failing revelry. The people, God's grace abounding to them, and they're resting in it, they're soaking in it, and God's smiling over them. He is dancing and singing in their songs and dances. He loves the joy of His people in the forgiveness and restoration He offers them. And at the end of it all, the priests and the Levites call everyone together and they pray with them and they bless them and the text says their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. And that's the way the chronicler says God smiles. He smiles over his people. And the author points backward to David and Solomon in verse 26 as if to say, this is like that but bigger. Back when the kingdom was united, back when the temple first opened, back when the visible sign of the Lord among his people was new and it was trusted by everyone. This is like that. This is as good as it gets for us. We've got our temple and our people and our land We know the end of the story. We know that that's not enough. Temple and people and land, Adam and Eve had that. They had it perfect and it didn't last. Hezekiah's great story ends in four short chapters. His amazing reign comes and goes. His son ignores the Lord and all this grace restored is forgotten again. And the land and the people And the temple run back to destruction. And the folks in this story hadn't been keeping Passover. They hadn't been retelling their story. And worship, week after week for us, is retelling our story. It's reclaiming our identity. It's calling that into us 
and to each other to be reshaped and remade and reformed into whom we've been declared to be. It's our one great story. It's all we have to say, but it is captivating. The unfolding story of God's great act of grace to find and redeem sinners, no matter how filthy, he had to get. The philosopher William James in 1907 said it as good as anyone. The prince of darkness, he may be a gentleman, as we're told he is. But whatever the God of earth and heaven is, he can surely be no gentleman. His menial services are needed in the dust of our human trials. And so when the king of kings comes to his temple and his people in the land that we call earth, when he enters into this mess with his holiness, he's covered with all of our uncleanness. And that's our story. And it's strange. It's very weird and off-putting. And it should be. Normal is not working for us. Things are not normal in this passage this morning. There's the delayed date of Passover. There's the whole nation getting that extension. There's sacrifices offered by unclean priests. There's even sacrifices offered by Levites. That's weird. There's the ridiculous, overwhelming doubling of the celebration from one week to two. Hezekiah was a good king to reframe normal for his people and their worship. And Jesus is even better than Hezekiah. He's fought to restore all that was lost to us. And in Jesus' absolutely perfect worship, we're secure. He reorients everything. Everything in our worship is different because He is both the sin and the sacrifice. Jesus is our exile and Jesus is our Passover. He's our destruction, and He's our restoration. And so, in our theology of worship, let us remember everything that we offer that's acceptable is not our work, but the work of Christ for us and the work of Christ in us. And so, however we formulate what we think about true worship, if it doesn't start with Jesus, it will unravel, just like David's and just like Solomon's. Worship begins with Jesus. Our one true sin, the root sin underneath all the others in us, is misplaced worship. And that's the greatest theme, I think, in all of Scripture. That lives go astray when hearts are maligned, misaligned. Pardon. Worship is a reflection of redemption. So if you've come from slavery with no deserving of your own, if you have walked out of that and into freedom, your worship is big. But if you think you can save yourself, who will you most value? And what will happen? If you are your Messiah, you'll either become an arrogant snob or you will languish in self-pity. Maybe you think a spouse or your spouse or having kids will finally redeem you, and then you'll just be insufferably clingy. Can your job save you? And then you'll worship it. Is your life meaningless? Is your life boring and you need someone to save you from 
the doldrums. Well, look for real and lasting joy to come from the Rangers and the Cowboys or the Aggies and see if any of those will let you down. Whatever Messiah you're looking for, your worship will look like. Your life will reflect your Messiah. And when we don't remember or we don't believe in our redemption in Christ, we don't quit worshiping. We just substitute other things for true worship. You've never met a non-worshipper. Scripture's theology of worship has Jesus Christ as the beginning, the center point, and the final aim. And so if we would share and participate in this worship, we need to see some things about ourselves. We need to see that our songs and our prayers and our financial gifts and our coming to the table together, these are the sacrifices that Jesus has made and given to us that we can return our songs to Him, return our prayers to Him, return our gifts to Him, return the promises of His covenant to Him with great thanks and loud praise. Our true worship is only a reflection of Jesus' truest worship of God, the great worshiper. And so when we leave the theater, the sacrifice of worship continues for us in life at home and at play and in our offices. And here's how it continues. We have to always drag and haul our desires and the treasures of our hearts and the ways we measure ourselves. We're always pulling those to the cross of Jesus. And like the priests and Levites in Second Chronicles 30, we grab a knife. And we bleed those things out. And we gut those things. And we skin those things. And we carve them up and lay them on the altar. And say, please, Lord, would you accept this? This is all I've got. I can't make it cleaner than... than I can't make it clean enough for you to deserve it. Would you take all that I want and give me more in Jesus. And when we walk away from the ashes of our false idols, burnt to a crisp, we gain more certainty, we gain more joy that the finished work of Christ is our only lasting hope. The truly worshiping God is losing. It is losing. Worship is sacrifice it's losing though what doesn't matter to gain the only thing that does a burnt offering was completely consumed as an atonement for sin there's no salvaging they they burnt it to dust and jesus is this ultimate sacrifice for our atonement but jesus also strengthens us to sacrifice what remains alongside him And that's the story of the apostles. That's the story of Paul. That's the story of the martyrs of church history. And it's my story and it's your story. In our continuing worship, we prove the God that we value above all else. And there's another set of offerings listed here. There's burnt offerings. And then there's a peace offering or a thanks offering. And that's the one that was shared like a feast. The Levites would take it when it was cooked perfectly back out to the person who brought it 
And they would eat the meat and they would share it with family and friends. God got a portion. The priest got a portion. The family and friends got portions. All in joy for the Lord's blessing. So let's consider again how the Lord deals with his people. They're not perfect and they're not clean. But God is patient and God is kind. And this is what our lives, both in and out of this church, should look like. What's wrong with New St. Peter's? Whatever your answer is, this passage probably won't deny it. It won't deny your answer, but it might deny your action. In this theology of worship, we're called to share in each other's sacrifices. As it comes back into the group, the person who's taking is handing out as well. And as God's people of worship, we share in each other's lives. We don't give up on each other, but we weep with those suffering lost. We laugh out loud, laugh ourselves to tears with those that are blessed. And that's not that much different than when we go into the world with non-worshippers. No one's worship is acceptable in itself. And in the same way that Hezekiah, and in the same way that Jesus, your king, stands before God and pleads with him to walk among the crowds, to accept their offering. That's your job, Christian. To go out, the way Peter talks about you, as a kingdom of priests. This is our offering of peace It's our thank offering to the glory of God for the joy of his people. In closing, I would remind you about chapter 36. When they read this, they were in exile. They were ripped away from whatever's described in chapter 30. They were doubtful that this could ever be true again. And so if you're here and you don't delight in God's worship, if you're here and you're doubtful or you're skeptical, welcome to the party. You're not alone. The books of the Chronicles were written to prove to doubters that God is truly faithful, no matter the circumstance. And so, when you're trapped by your sin or despair, we know that that feels exactly like exile. Every heart in here knows what exile feels like. We know it's hard to look through the chains and into freedom. And all that we can offer you gathered together is this one story of promise that we rehearse and we retell week after week that Jesus is bigger than our captor, Jesus is better than our circumstances, and worship is smiling at the promise that God is making all things new. Worship is smiling at the promises that God is making all things new. And the even more amazing news for us this morning is that we were, from the very beginning, designed for joy by God Himself because He is the great worshiper. So the desire of every human heart to find value and delight in life, this is the fingerprint, the holy fingerprint of God eternal on every human soul. And if we could get hands on our worship and 
lift it out and flip it over. On the bottom, it would say, made in God. That's why worship is. Each of us worships because that's what we were engineered to do, to reflect our great worshiping and joyful God. He enjoys, He delights, He renews. And that's our story. And you're His image. Our call going out is for that abundant joy of worship to shape everything in us and everything around us. Jesus is your temple, and you are his people, and this is our Father's world. Worship is ours. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, our prayer this morning is that you would make it so. Let it be so. Let us see the restoring work of Christ to bring us unclean and inadequate sons and daughters to you. Let us feel the restoring work done in us by your Spirit as he molds and conforms us into what you declare is true, that we are your beautiful bride. And let us strive to restore the places that you have us in. Let us preach and live restoration in our families, and in our neighborhoods, and at our jobs. Let us worship as Christ goes out before us, as Christ is in our songs and conversation, as Christ is pulling us to himself where all things are new. In his name we ask and pray. Amen.